Okay, today I'll be doing 20 brief book reviews for 2020, and I'll be going over books 20 through 15. It's a little late in the game. We're already in February for 2021, but I wanted to share with you some of the books I read in 2020, kind of give just some quick thoughts on a few of them. Some will be a little longer than others, kind of give you a few quotes from some of them. Perhaps you might be interested in reading them yourselves. Okay, so number 20, this is Anne Mary's Another, A Divorce and Remarriage in the Teaching of the New Testament by Craig Keener. This book is terrible. Keener writes like a soft conservative slash liberal and just a soft man generally, so it was very difficult for me to get through it. There's just a certain way of speaking that lends itself to this effeminate tone, and he speaks this way. I can't stand it. It's very, very difficult to get through. Additionally, he's lauded as this academic, but to me, I thought it was terrible arguments. In this book, at the end of the day, anyone can get divorced and remarried for any reason. That's basically the echo chamber of all evangelical books on divorce and remarriage. Pastors just need to cry about it and treat people like they're made of paper mache. I had a debate on divorce and remarriage with Dr. Stephen Boyce. You can find it in the transcript. And so I reread I re a bunch of books in preparation that I had read several years ago. So I'm just going to review them very quickly here. Keener states his position. Divorce is to be avoided, but there are certain circumstances under which divorce and remarriage are acceptable. Right? This is the standard line. It's like... Divorce should be avoided, but there are certain circumstances where it can be allowed, and basically that allows it to happen in all circumstances. Nothing is off limits. So that's the reality, that, that anybody can get divorced and remarried for any reason. So Keener regularly talks about mean parts of the church, right? He uses words like the prejudiced parts of the church. So he's appropriating language that people would use to denounce racism, and then he's applying it towards this divorce-remarriage thing, like uh, people who are divorced are treated like blacks were in the Jim Crow South. So he's already kind of situating it as if you're a racist if you're... <laughs> if you're prejudiced towards divorcees. It's these incredibly emotional and manipulative ways of arguing. And he speaks of these bigoted churches, like they're all over the place. And I, I have no idea what he's talking about. I'd like to know who these who these bigots are. He He purposely goes out of his way not to name denominations, which I wish he did. But he says stuff like, you all know who I'm talking about. No, we don't. We don't know who you're talking about. So Keener is basically throwing this book into an echo chamber of other soft, effeminate, zeitgeist-worshipping men, of which he is kind of a paragon of. Another tactic Keener uses is just death by citation and words. He, he just talks extensively of the background, the historical data, and gives us plenty of academic citations. And so to someone who's not critically reading this, it seems to lend credibility to his arguments, even if the arguments are terrible. It's like, oh, look at all these citations. Look at how, look at how well studied he is. Oh, wow. What a great argument. So if you want to be viewed as a theological powerhouse, just make a lot of citations. Talk about the background considerations to the issues, which we all should. And then that magically makes your argument not total garbage, which is what his is. Keener makes similar 
similar arguments to Erasmus, if you ever read Erasmus, by basically saying, we assume exceptions of all other kinds, like taking oaths and stuff like this in the dominical standards. And so we should make exceptions on divorce too. And so these things are easily deconstructed. I'm not going to deconstruct them here, but if you just take time to think about this, and there's good reasons that these dominical sayings are not all on the same level, or there's reasons for reading exceptions or reading them differently. I wouldn't even frame it as exceptions. It's just, it's framed in such a way, which is not the reality of what Jesus is talking about. So these are just convoluted and, and ridiculous arguments. I really had a hard time forcing myself through the book, but everybody applauds Keener as somebody to read and listen to. So, so I read it. There's standard evangelical arguments that the old theologians would say that it's centrifuge. Like it's just obfuscation of the issue. You just front load it with tons of words, tons of rabbit trails, and you make it so convoluted that at the end of the day, you justify divorce and remarriage in all cases. So if you are into justifying yourself before men, this book is for you. Divorce and Remarriage in the Bible, the Social and Literary Context by David Instone Brewer. This is another terrible book, but the research is very well done and thorough. I learned a lot from reading it. So in that regard, it is helpful and it's not like emotionally driven like Keener is. It's definitely more of an academic tone. I appreciated it in that sense. But then what Instone Brewer does is he basically lets the social context provide the widest exceptions to divorce and remarriage, as if the social context has to match up with what Jesus is teaching, which is <laughs> ridiculous. Like Jesus is constantly pushing against the social and literary context, or the social context for sure. I think the literary context, he has other problems there. That's one mistake he makes, is that the social context informs us that it has to be in line with what Jesus is teaching. Not true. And then he gets a lot of juice out of debated, obscure Levitical laws. He lets the Old Testament control the New Testament in his hermeneutic when it should be the other way around. And to his credit, he admits that his view departs from what he says is the near unanimous consensus of the early fathers or the traditional view as he labels it. So I appreciated his honesty there. I'm pretty sure he's English and the English, I think, have a stronger sense of what the tradition has said rather than the the American tradition or the American church. So I appreciate his honesty there. And he deals much more honestly with the, the Christian tradition where Instone Brewer actually, he goes through the early fathers and shows that he's departing from them in a lot of ways. So again, it's a more sophisticated form of justifying yourself in your unlawful remarriages that all the conservative hypocrites really are into. If you want to justify your sin, that's a really great book to read. And then this is the other one. I don't have the, uh, but uh, Divorce and Remarriage from William Luck. This is probably the best treatment of divorce and remarriage from a permissive viewpoint. I would say it's the standard. Like if you are interested in getting the best arguments to defend divorce and remarriage as something permitted, read William Luck. If the created order is only an ideal and not an inflexible standard, then Luck is the most consistent and able expositor of a permissive interpretation. He has a lengthy appendix defending the lawfulness of polygamy, which is is the natural and consistent conclusion if we are going to permit divorce and remarriage. That's one reason why I think he's great. He does it in this kind of slimy sophistry where he's like, I'm not saying we should do this, but I am saying that it is permitted. 
And I think if you permit divorce and remarriage, you have to be on board with polygamy as well. And he is consistent on this point. And I would say he's probably the smartest person that I've ever read who defends divorce and remarriage. The best arguments of justifying this adulterous sin that we are very interested in justifying. So if you're looking to justify yourself in that sin, great book for you. Definitely really good. You should definitely check it out. Number 17, The Conduct of the Service. It's like kind of two books in one by Arthur Peepcorn and Charles McLean. It's a Lutheran book written by some kind of conservative Lutherans, evangelical Catholics is probably what they would call themselves. It's a tedious and detailed book advocating for traditional worship. It's tedious because it just goes through the minutiae of the ceremonial in the kind of medieval Lutheran form, which kind of takes away a lot of the extraneous Roman error. I'm glad books like this exist. I'm glad traditions like this exist. I would still place myself more in the Reformed tradition, but I really like Lutherans on worship, generally, I have my complaints, but I think that they maintain a right sense of things being adiaphora, where other traditions don't, like Eastern Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism. So they maintain these kind of ancient medieval forms of worship, which are rich and beautiful, and then they discard Roman excess. Sometimes you have kind of young trad Lutherans who are kind of obnoxious. They wind up being as rigid and erroneous as Roman Catholics, and they essentially don't believe that forms of worship are adiaphora, which is wrong. So you have to kind of parse out, you have kind of cultural movements among young rad trads, but then you have the actual statements of the Lutheran tradition, which are good, I think, and helpful. Okay, so here are a few quotes. This is on incense. The use of incense has become very rare in our churches since the Reformation. This is strange in view of the fact that incense is so frequently mentioned in the sacred scriptures. So I would heartily agree with that. I I think that that is something that churches could incorporate into their worship services, even Reformed churches. It's biblical. It's there. It has a lot of symbolic significance in the scriptures, and it was part of the worship of the old covenants. And in the new covenant, we see incense when John sees into heaven. And so if we are to make earth as heavenly as possible, particularly in our worship, I think that that's a good thing to use. It's permissible at the very least, and I think that that's a good thing. On the altar, the altar is the one absolutely essential piece of furniture in the church building. If there is to be a meal, there must necessarily be a table on which to prepare it. The altar should indicate by its size and dignity the position and position its role as the table for the Eucharistic meal and the symbol of the presence of the exalted Christ among his people. You go into a lot of non-denominational churches and kind of the centerpiece of furniture that you see is the drum set, right? Which, that's great in itself. We are, we're using instruments to worship God, and the psalm, psalmist talks about that, and I think that that's good. But there is something, if we are, how do we worship? How should we worship? How should we think about aesthetics? I think that it's good to have kind of the centerpiece be the altar, because that symbolizes the sacrifice of Christ that we remember in communion. And also it symbolizes us as offering our bodies as living sacrifices. Sacrifice of thanksgiving is talked about in the Psalms as well. And so I like when you go into a church and having that immediate sacrificial symbol being there. And of course, we always have to say Jesus is not being re-sacrificed in communion. But what does Paul say? He says, we proclaim the Lord's death in this meal till he comes again. 
this should not be controversial. This is the way the Bible talks about this meal, and that's exactly what the meal indicates. And also notice how they use table and altar together. And I think that we can refer to it as both. The Reformed tradition generally wants to exclusively refer to it as a table. The Lutheran tradition is using both languages here. I think Peter Lightheart kind of uses these terms interchangeably. I think we can do the same thing. In the Christian tradition, the altar is also the symbol of Christ and the church and therefore of the presence of God with his people. The altar is by definition a place of sacrifice and therefore stands in the church as the symbol of the one perfect sacrifice of Christ on the cross of which the Eucharist is the memorial. There you go. The one sacrifice of Christ of which the Eucharist is the memorial. And if you do a study on remembrance or memorial in scripture, what you see is that it's often a memorial for God. It's, it symbolizes God remembering his covenant with his people. And I think the Eucharist does this as well. There is a sense in which we remember it, of course, but it's not merely for our sake. It's also for the Lord's, which is kind of maybe counterintuitive to think about, but that's the way the Bible speaks of memorial sacrifices in the Old Testament, the rainbow in the Noahic covenant, things like this. On versus populum, so liturgy junkies get real snobbish about the way in which the minister is facing. High liturgy snobs will always prefer ad orientum, facing east, or facing toward God with the people. This is popularly described or perceived as the minister with his back to the people, but the point is that he is facing with the people toward God. So he faces toward God when he is doing sacrificial actions like prayer, and then he's facing toward the people when he is doing sacramental actions like administering the body and the blood of Christ. So there is a a logic to that, a certain beauty and richness to it. There's a historical precedent for it. Christians faced East very early on when they prayed. But rad trads, radically traditionalist Christians who are very zealous, they err by saying this is the only way one can do it. And they get scandalized if they face, if the minister is facing the people and that it's, it's sinful to face the people. There's all kinds of arguments for this. And so facing the people is called versus populum. So that's an error to make a law out of which way the minister faces. This is something that can be left up to Christian liberty, and there's good reasons for both. So it's fine if a church decides that its minister, that its minister should worship this way, either way. I've done both. Both are fine. But here's McLean on versus Populum. Celebrating the Eucharist facing the people reflects an approach to the liturgy common to the pre-medieval period, which emphasizes the involvement of the whole church in the Eucharistic action. In the pre-medieval period, the bishop, seated behind the altar and facing the people, preached and offered the great Eucharistic prayer. Prior to Vatican II, you have this resource movement in Catholic circles, which was trying to return to the scriptures and the early fathers. And you had this kind of moment where conservatives were really trying to go back to the sources. And you see some of that in Vatican II, where Vatican II permits ministers to face the people as getting everybody involved, which is a very Protestant move on the on the Roman Catholic Church's part. And the problem is that Vatican II brought in a bunch of liberalizing tendencies as well. And rad trads have no ability to parse out 
this is good, this is bad. It's just they see that there was liberalism attached to it in other areas, and so they discard all of these other liturgical innovations as being dangerous and heretical. But this is where I part. I could never be Roman Catholic. I'd never be Eastern Orthodox because they are so allergic to departing from established traditions and going back to the source. And one example of this is the minister facing the people, where there's precedent in the early church of this being the way that it was done. Again, it's an adiaphora issue. I just cannot put it on the same level as a lot of these liturgical snobs do. All right, so on adoration. While Lutheran pastors will be careful to instruct their people not to adore the bread and wine as such, they will also be careful to instruct their communicants that no one, unless he be an Arian heretic, can and will deny that Christ himself, true God and man, who is truly and essentially present in the Holy Communion in the rite of celebration thereof, should be adored in spirit and truth. And this is from the Formula of Concord, one of the kind of foundational confessional documents of the Lutheran Church. So, this is kind of the difficulty of the Lutheran position, really trying to maintain a certain kind of reverence for these sacramental rites given to us by Jesus himself without falling into the excessive practices of Rome at the same time. It seems like a walking of a tightrope, but it's something that I appreciate that the Lutheran tradition has done, maintaining their evangelical scriptural allegiance while not throwing out the baby with the bathwater in terms of what the Bible actually says about these things and then having a certain kind of respect for the family tradition, the Christian tradition. All right, on ceremony. In addition to the rites and rubrics of our authorized service books, three principles have shaped the following directions— historic precedent, ecumenical consensus, and contemporary need. In an age that seems to have little sense of historic continuity, the appeal to historic precedent may seem pointless. Besides, some of the ceremonial described in the following pages may not be immediately intelligible to every worshiper. Yet while the historic ceremonial is not always immediately intelligible, it can be made meaningful. But why, some will ask, should we burden ourselves with ceremonial that requires explanation? Ceremonial from the dim past. The answer to that question can partially be suggested by referring to the words of St. Paul. What? Did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only ones it has reached? The ceremonial of the liturgy, no less than the rite, reminds us of our continuity with the host of believers who have gathered to do this in remembrance of the Lord ever since the night when he was betrayed. Unthinking bondage to historic precedent is, of course, deadening. Besides, a reading of the numerous rites of Christendom would quickly show that one could find precedent for almost anything he would want to do. This then implies that in appealing to historic precedent, one must also consider historic consensus, insofar as that exists, and the intrinsic meaningfulness of a usage. Lutherans will, in most cases, give greatest weight to Lutheran precedent, in this way visibly asserting Lutheran confessional identity. Okay, so he's saying... Why even do this? And he basically says, because this is a way of us showing our continuity with the past. And I think that that is sufficient. I really appreciate that approach. And he says, well, you can basically justify anything. And he says, okay, so on top of the historic precedent, we look for more of a consensus, the wider Catholic consensus among the church. He says, the appeal to ecumenical consensus springs from the conviction that we are, in spite of our divisions, one with all who have been baptized into our Lord's death and resurrection. So then on top of that, we 
are doing this kind of ecumenical, irenic, kind of one body, one baptism, one faith thing when we incorporate these practices that have been widely held by the church. Two thumbs up to that. I think that's, that's great. On sacrifice in the Eucharist. Historically, the offertory is one of the climaxes of the service. In the primitive church, the faithful brought offerings of bread and wine, as well as other kinds of food, for the relief of the poor, for the support of the clergy, and as symbols of their life of total worship, their self-dedication to the God of the creation, their redemption, and their recreation. From these offerings, the loaves and wine needed for the celebration of the sacrament of the altar were taken. Later on, the offerings in kind were commuted into offerings of money for the convenience of both the worshipers and the administrators of the church's financial affairs. The offertory is still a reminder that in Martin Luther's words, we are the sacrifice in the Holy Eucharist. And I think that that is a great way of thinking about it, that this is a ceremonial aspect where Augustine would say it's the total Christ offering himself to the Father, where us as the body of Christ, we are offering ourselves as living sacrifices, just as Christ offered himself as a living sacrifice. And there's some sense in which that sacrifice transcends time, because when we read in Revelation, we see that he sees the lamb as if it were slain before the foundations of the world. And and that's another kind of deep mystery aspect in sacramental theology and the Eucharist that the sacrifice of Christ, it transcends time. And so we are incorporated into Christ. And so we are incorporated into that sacrifice as well. And that is attendant with a lot of mystery. But I think we liturgically show that we ceremonially show that when we come together to worship the Lord on Sundays on reverence. This is kind of a long one, but I think this is the last quote. There is really only one basic rule of good form, be courteous. And similarly, there is really only one basic rule of altar decorum, be reverent. Every other rule is simply a practical amplification of this basic charge. To be reverent, we must first of all be humble. We are ministers, ministers of Christ, serving Christ in the room and in the name of fellow sinners. We minister not because of any virtue in ourselves. Our sufficiency is of God. We minister as temples of the Holy Ghost, as being bound in sacramental union to the Lord of the Church, as kings and priests living in mystic communion with the Most Holy Trinity, as those whom Christ has chosen, that we might be with him, that he might send us forth to preach. We minister under the aspect of eternity and in the presence of the Divine Majesty. Wherever we stand, we are on holy ground. In such a ministry, there is no room for pride, only for all-pervading humility. So he's emphasizing the aspect of reverence at the altar, and there's also this kind of Lutheran priesthood of all believers there. They're really pushing against maybe a kind of sacerdotalism, where in the Roman church, there's this ontological change that takes place in the priest. But here he's saying we minister as fellow sinners, right? This kind of simultaneously sinner and saint kind of idea coming through even with the ministers. To be reverent, we must be prepared. We must know what we are doing and why we are doing it. The physical preparations, as far as may be, should be taken care of well in advance. There should be no last minute running to and fro, no hasty final preparation, no distress paging about. A meditation, brief if need be, but as long as the time permits, ought never to be overlooked. Spiritual preparation is more essential to reverence than the proper ordering of the physical adjuncts, right? So there is this prioritization of being spiritually prepared rather than merely the ceremonial. To be reverent, we must be calm. The unforeseen, the accidental, the disturbing must not be permitted to distract us. 
We are God's ambassadors and God's servants. We are speaking for and to God. Our entire lives ought to be, and our public ministry must be, in Christo, in Christ. So must the calm peace of the changeless Christ in our souls be reflected in our outward demeanor. The discussion of practical details which follows is intended to be neither liturgical nor unliturgical. If certain individual suggestions seem to reflect a liturgical bias, it is because we are not persuaded that every parish and every parson must scale its or his ceremonial down to the lowest level in use among us. Those less liturgically inclined may depart from the norms suggested as widely as their vagrant fancy and their Christian liberty dictate, and they will unquestionably do so. Those things are not matters of faith, and their doing or omissions neither mortal nor venial sin. He's basically saying this book is going to be high liturgical. It's going to be basically as ceremonial as, as we can get. But it's because we don't believe we have to pare things down to kind of the lowest common denominator. And he's saying, if you depart from this, it's not a sin. It's not a venial sin. It's not a mortal sin. We have Christian liberty to decide on how to worship God in these things. Really awesome. I think that that's this. This is this is the problem with the Anglican tradition, right? This is the problem of the established Anglican Church and the Puritans or the dissidents at the time of the English Reformation is that there wasn't liberty given to churches to worship how they wanted to vestments, no vestments, kinds of prayers. This is why I would side with the Puritans or the dissenting group over and above the established church, even if I might theologically align with the established church in England more than the Puritans on certain worship practices. In principle, I would side with the Puritans and the dissenters on their freedom to do these kinds of things. And the Lutheran tradition maintains this really well by allowing their churches to exercise the fullness of their Christian liberty and their conscience. And they, I think because of Luther's own personal scruples with his conscience, I think that you kind of see that flow down into Lutheran doctrine as to not bind consciences in matters of adiaphora, things that don't matter as much. In general, services should be conducted, rites performed, and the holy sacraments administered in the place set aside for that purpose, the church. We need not ascribe intrinsic sanctity to a place or a building or an object to realize that devotion and reverence inevitably reflect surroundings and associations. It is not a question of validity or efficacy. It is simply that it is usually easier to be reverent in church, and so the church should be the scene of our ministration except where inescapable exigencies direct that another be employed. Okay, so they're suggesting worshiping in a church building, but they allow that some Sometimes this is not possible, right? You might have to worship in a living room, in an apartment, in a park somewhere, in a hut in Africa. The Lutheran tradition is just very good at understanding and not ascribing undue sanctity to these what they call physical adjuncts. And so I think they rightly prefer that this is the way it should happen. And I think biblical precedent shows that, but they uh, allow for inescapable exigencies. He says, our service allows a wide range of individual liberty and gives full scope to parochial peculiarities. But the very rubrics which provide this beautiful freedom become gins of irreverence and confusion for the feet of the unwary and the uninstructed. Each church might well have its orders of service as used, mimeographed, or printed and placed in the hands of the worshipers before the service or rite begins. Okay, again, it's, it's giving freedom to the individual 
parishes, to the individual churches to craft these services as they see fit. But And then they say this can give the opportunity or the occasion to be irreverent. And so they're giving this book to say, hey, here's a model for keeping this reverence and decorum in church. And so it's just like with anything, anything can be abused, but they are careful to maintain Christian freedom here, the individual local church level. So again, just to summarize, the Lutheran approach maintains a healthy sense of Christian liberty, the priesthood of all believers, and an emphasis on the word, which makes its ceremonial more healthy than Rome or Eastern Orthodoxy or Anglo-Catholicism. Uh, number 16, The Guide to the Mass from the 1928 Book of Common Prayer for Anglican Youth and Newcomers by Jackie Jameson and Sean McDermott. I actually went to undergrad with Sean McDermott. I didn't really know him too well, but uh, kind of an interesting connection there. His father, I think, is a Anglican pastor as well. But it's very brief. It's very small. Um, but it's a very helpful guide for understanding an Anglo-Catholic Mass. And as I said before, it seems to me Lutherans are better at resisting some of the mistakes of Rome, but Anglo-Catholics also have valuable things to offer as well. There isn't much that I would disagree with in that book. If you ask the question, how should we worship, I think this tradition of the church does have a lot to offer or to consider, even someone who, like myself, would resolutely stay in the kind of low church, reformed, uh, evangelical, charismatic tradition, but I don't have a problem with kind of the... I guess, externalities of high church worship or even a lot of the meanings behind them as long as the kind of excesses of Rome are shaved off. And I would say Anglo-Catholicism is a kind of, it's closer to Rome than Lutheranism for sure. But as far as the component parts of worship, this book is pretty helpful. It provides brief explanations and defenses of ceremonial liturgical worship in the Anglo-Catholic tradition. So they have treasures that the rest of the church can benefit from. Okay, and the last one, Merrily on High, an Anglo-Catholic memoir by Colin Stevenson, who is a Anglo-Catholic priest. It's an interesting and often humorous autobiographical account of Stevenson's life journey into and in the Anglo-Catholic tradition. I like reading Stevenson because he doesn't take issue with poking fun of his own tradition. That speaks a lot to me if you're able to kind of rib your own tribe. It makes me kind of respect you a little bit more. In the preface, Gordon Reed describes Colin Stevenson's ministry. In the end, his entire ministry and the charm and value of this book can be summed up in what he says in chapter 6. I very much enjoyed parish work because I am fortunate enough to like people, and he liked them colorful like the Catholic faith in all its glory. He did not despise middle stump Anglicanism or evangelicals, but it was not for him. As he said, I did once go into a low church, and the clergyman who was standing at the door said, dull, isn't it? I agreed heartily till I discovered he was talking about the weather. <laughs> So yeah, this can be a problem, I think, in the Anglo-Catholic tradition or just these higher church traditions. There is a sometimes an over-infatuation with just the externals, with just the ornate, the colorful. You know, that's okay. You read what worship looked like in the tabernacle and the temple. There was a lot of colors. There was a lot of ornateness. There was garments given simply for beauty's sake. And so I think there's continuity with 
I would call it the ancient church in that regard. And just because the Levitical sacrifices have been done away with in Christ, we are still shown something about what God prefers in his worship when we see this ordered kind of symbolic worship in the Old Testament. And so I, I got to give credit to where credit's due. The Anglo-Catholic, the Roman Catholic, and the Eastern Orthodox traditions certainly mimic or appropriate those in kind of new covenant forms. I would say that's a strength, but a, a weakness is that those traditions often succumb to the exact same problems that like first century Judaism succumbed to, elevating the traditions of man to places that were not commanded by God and sacrificing the commandments of God for the traditions of man. That's a kind of like typical evangelical criticism of these traditions. And they're true. It's just it's just absolutely true. Like Stevenson, he's kind of self-aware of some of the caricatures, the Anglo-Catholic caricature, which I see this among Anglo-Catholics, Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox. Stevenson says, I knew far more about ceremonial than was healthy. <laughs> So I respect him even for that. He he realized there was a bit too much of an infatuation with this. He recounts another experience that I think really shows kind of the absurdity of the Roman tradition and the superiority of the evangelical tradition. This was an Anglo-Catholic church, but this is Roman influence, right? He goes to a priest that has kind of more of an evangelical bent, and then he goes to one that has more of an Anglo-Catholic bent. I once said to a strange priest who was obviously not used to hearing confessions, you haven't given me a penance, Father. And he replied, make yourself a living sacrifice. I left the confessional so puzzled that I went to another priest to ask what I should do. And he said, nonsense, say three Hail Marys. He goes on, yet in spite of all peculiarities, I have always found that the use of the sacrament of penance is some sort of a test of my sincerity and an outward expression of a desire to please God at some, if only a small cost. So this really is an absurdity, and I think Stevenson knows it's an absurdity, that of course we are to make our lives a living sacrifice. That's like the greatest thing that priest could have said to him. And to call it nonsense from the other priests is basically heresy. It is heresy. It's very wrong for him to say that. But Stevenson found that penance was a way for him to manifest sincerity and repentance, which every tradition believes. And of course, the evangelical tradition would say that your sincerity in repentance is by forsaking sin and manifesting the good works that you have been appointed to before the the foundations of the world. It's not tied to, you know, saying these particular prayers that we would take issue with in themselves, like a, like a Hail Mary or something like this. Lastly, I appreciated this passage from the end of the book. It shows Stevenson recognizing that the Holy Spirit does do new things and also that every era of the church has something to offer. This, in my view, is true Catholicity. This is mature Christian thinking. He begins by recounting a visit to an Eastern Orthodox monastery called Mount Athos. I watched a documentary on this particular monastery a couple years ago. You can find it in the transcript. There are other documentaries on it too. I think 60 Minutes did a segment on it, and it's, it's interesting to say the least. He says this, Athos is a wonderful place, and I should hate it to be thought that I have anything but veneration for its monks and gratitude for the kindness they showed me during my visits. But it did reveal to me very clearly the dangers of trying to shut the church up in the past. 
So much of the Catholic movement in the Church of England has been a turning backwards and a holding on to certain positions with a fanaticism bred from a sense of insecurity. I realize that while I should never find the Reformation attractive, yet the Reformers had a point. Faced with the situation they found and their valid insights into living of the gospel have been enshrined in bodies which we have rather contemptuously called dissenting. Every period in the history of the church has much to teach us, and there are many things, the crusades for one, of which we should be heartily ashamed, but our duty is to live in the church today, which involves situations which cannot be met by a slavish imitation of the past, be it Puritan, Catholic, or primitive. This is particularly true of liturgy. Series 2 and Series 3 will soon be as much amongst the fossilized relics as 1662 and 1928. I am glad that I live in the church now, for in spite of its absurdities, I am conscious of the Holy Spirit at work. I think this is great. This is phenomenal. This is true Catholicity. As I said, I am more in the Reformed evangelical and you know, continuationist traditions, charismatic traditions. And I've, I've attempted to sum up that position as Reformed Catholic, really articulated by Peter Lightheart. But even that term, it can mean different things to different people. So it's, it's very difficult. And I've had people <laughs> tell me I'm going to hell because I'm truly, I'm really a Roman Catholic, <laughs> which is really funny. But I do resonate very strongly with the Catholicity that he's making here. I would actually say it's kind of a post-millennial view of the kingdom where he is like, we cannot solve these problems by slavishly imitating these traditions of the past. Not going to work. You have to be led by the Holy Spirit. You have to be guided by scripture. And all of our contexts are different now. And there's different issues at play. And while we can gather and learn from these past things, I think it's the sign of a weak mind and someone who is someone who lacks communion with the Lord in their own personal devotions to slavishly imitate the past. And that needs to be remedied. That needs to be remedied by hearing what the Spirit is saying today and and what the scriptures, how the scriptures apply to today. And, and you see this with different traditions. You see reformed people saying we just need to bring back justification by faith alone. And that might have application to, you know, maybe some of the SJW kind of cultural Marxist stuff that's going on, but completely ignoring this plague of divorce and remarriage in the church and the sexual chaos and the pornographic kind of like ubiquity in the culture and not seeing that the fundamental thing is that the church is responsible for this by allowing adultery to come in. I mean, that's that's one thing that I, I think is very obvious, and there's not going to be a slavish imitation that leads us to that. You just have to read the scriptures and understand that this is the pressing need of our time. Anyway, I think Stevenson is, is really good in realizing that you can't shut up the church in the past, and that guys like Peter Lightheart or James Jordan are very helpful, I think, in understanding that this is the way that the kingdom advances, that we do move from glory to glory in Reformation. The church reformed, always reforming, right? We are going to be reforming until the church reaches its purity when when Christ comes back. Just as the individual is sanctified over time, so too the church is sanctified over time. So we have to continue to go back to the scriptures, continue to look at our past, but not slavishly imitate it. And then Jesus says the spirit will lead us into all truth. And so that's what we 
we have to do. We have to search what the Holy Spirit is saying, bringing certain things out of Scripture, applying them in faithful ways. And that is how the church is going to grow in unity. That's how the remnant of faithful believers will be a, a good kind of leaven that leavens the whole lump. I really believe that a post-millennial framework is the only legitimate framework to understand how that works. Other frameworks are essentially, I think, they abdicate our responsibility in those things. Even if people who hold to those viewpoints, they probably, many of them function in a way that is inconsistent with their beliefs. And that's good. That is a good kind of inconsistency that they hold, that the world does matter and they, they aren't being escapist about it. Those are some of the books that I read last year. I'll go through uh, a few more in the next installment and we'll try to get through all of these in the next week or so. All right. Have a good one. Bye.